0: On this episode, a Scottish researcher and author describes his search for the elusive Loch Ness Monster.
2: Last year, I saw a huge splash in the Loch. I just caught it in my corner eye. Uh, Something had gone back down into Loch and it left a, a big column of water falling back in. But once again, I couldn't be sure.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of...
0: Hey, how's your Wednesday shaping up? Just a reminder if you haven't already done so, please check out my other podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. If you love rock and roll and you love mysteries, I know you're going to really enjoy The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. New episodes drop every Wednesday at midnight. 12 a.m. Eastern, you could really help me boost it in the rankings if you were all to download a couple of episodes. But I have a feeling if you listen to one, you're going to become a regular subscriber. That's the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone exclusive to the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. For centuries, people have claimed to have seen a strange creature swimming in the murky waters of Britain's biggest body of water, Loch Ness. However, A small but sensational number of these witnesses have claimed to have seen the same creature lurking on the beaches and on land surrounding the loch. In ancient folklore, there were descriptions of supernatural water horses on land near the loch. In the modern era, these types of reports of Nessie began in 1933, when on a hot summer's day in July, a witness said he saw what looked like a prehistoric creature crossing the road in front of him. In 1935, a motorcyclist named Arthur Grant said he saw a 25-foot-long creature with a snake-like neck and webbed flippers moving on the beach of the loch under the moonlight. It was said that investigators found tracks of a creature after Grant made his report. Farmers in the area have reported their sheep going missing, and some suspect that Nessie-type beasts grab them to devour them during their forays on land. Resident of Scotland, Roland Watson has been a longtime researcher of the legends and evidence for the Loch Ness Monster. He's the author of Water Horses of the Loch Ness and When Monsters Come Ashore Stories of the Loch Ness Monster on Land. Roland Watson, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Oh, i well, Richard. Thank you. I want to ask you about uh, your, your book on, on uh, water horses. When we're talking about water horses or water bulls, are we talking about the same thing when we're talking about the Loch Ness Monster?
2: Yeah, well, you're referring to my book uh, on folklore of the Loch Ness Monster. So we're, we're basically talking about tales going back centuries by the old Gaelic Speaking Highlanders, and they had three types of beasts: water horses, water bulls, and kelpies. Now kelpies were actually river, river entities, uh, so they don't really count. But the terms got confused by Victorian authors from England who came up to collect these stories, and the three get kind of conflated. Uh, water horses are aggressive, man supernatural beasts. Water bulls are more docile, uh, like bulls. I suppose they don't eat people, according to their traditions. So, all three have been reputed to haunt Loch Ness centuries past.
0: Now, according to legend, Saint Columba encountered a, a fairly fierce uh, creature. I think, according to the legend, it had it had killed uh, one of his associates. Uh, What what do you make of that legend? Uh, I mean, are water horses real?
2: Yeah, well, I I take the view that every myth, legend, has a kernel of truth in it. Uh, So, I mean, the story of St. Columba does have embellishments, you know. We have St. Columba who, by a miraculous intervention, takes control of the, the beast through merely invoking the name of God. I mean, there's a hagiography, so basically it's it's bigging up St Columba. But I believe that it's based on a real creature that was known to inhabit that area at the time. Uh, What they actually thought it was at the time, I have no idea, water spirit or whatever. But it, it was regarded as a real beast and something that you really didn't want to approach
0: so the, the modern era of, of Loch Ness, I guess, begins around 1933 with Aldi McKay. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, once you get past the folklore, uh, we begin to move into the Industrial Revolution. We move into the modern era. We had stories popping up now and again before 1933, but the, the era of Nessie really does begin with that Aldi Mackay story you just mentioned. That was the first basically newspaper report that gained traction with the reading public and she basically describes seeing two humps moving across the loch, changing direction and what she describes like a whale turning and foaming in the water and you know, that basically was taken up by the editor of the Inverness Courier, which published the story and thereafter they kept a weather eye open for more stories and they began to print more and the thing basically began to gain momentum.
0: And that sighting, there were two sightings, were there not? There was the one in the water, and was there not also uh, an, a, a sighting on land by Mackay?
2: Yeah, we got, I've got to say that the, the, the land sighting was by a Mr. George Spicer. And that happened about four months after the Mackays. In late July, 1933, George Spicer and his wife were travelling on the quieter side of the loch and then they said they saw up to 200 yards away in front of them the thing they described as the nearest thing they could describe closest thing to a prehistoric monster basically jerking across the road like some lumbering Leviathan it was in view for seconds but they estimated it was about at least 25 feet long grey almost snail-like quite loathsome actually I uh, just bolted across the road. They got to the spot where it had vanished and they just saw this big hole in the undergrowth. had uh, gone. But he wrote to the name of this courier once again and that story really was picked up nationally. It went down to England, abroad, and that, that was really... Actually, that was more important than the Aldi Mackay story. They both are important to varying degrees, but that... That was the one that began to take the public's imagination, I would say. You know, because uh, if you have a, a monster on land, it basically becomes the largest animal on land, bigger than an elephant. You know, the Loch Ness Monster on land is the biggest animal on land today.
0: Right, and, and you've dedicated an entire book to this, When Monsters Come Ashore, Stories of the Loch Ness Monster on Land. If... If it is seen lumbering around on land, would that not rule out the possibility that the Loch Ness Monster is a plesiosaur?
2: That's a good question there. Of course, we we can only infer the behavior of a plesiosaur. All we have is fossils, you know, bones. And we have to infer whether the flippers could have sustained, held the creature up on land. I mean, most people think it, it did the place thought was capable of coming on land, uh, but after it's locomotion on land we really have no idea. Uh, we can run computer models which try to simulate movement on land, but there's no real conclusion about how mobile it was, how fast it could go, how long it could stay out of the water. You know, we're just, we're just guessing and speculating.
0: Right. Now, when when people uh, see the Loch Ness monster in in the water, I mean, we have, I I believe it's, I'm not sure if it's from the Aldi Mackay sighting or not, but it is sort of held up as the sort of the, uh, the most famous picture of Loch Ness, which is kind of a silhouette of this long neck protruding out of the water. Is that the Mackay sighting?
2: No, that's the Kenneth Wilson photograph, ah. more commonly known as the Surgeon's Photograph. Now, as you see, it's a, a long neck, by all appearances. It was taken in April 1934, so it was about a year later. And uh, Kenneth Wilson uh, claimed that he was driving on the other side of the loch, further down, further south from the Mackays, and he saw the water stirring, and this creature basically rose its neck outside the waters about 200 to yards he took some photographs and the rest is history as you say so that, that that's becoming the basic iconic image of the Loch Ness monster and it, it held it pretty much held sway for you know going on 60 years but there was an expose by two researchers Alistair Boyd and David Martin He wrote a book on the 60th anniversary of the photograph called The Surgeon's Photograph Exposed, in which he basically put out an argument that it had been faked by some people who had been let down by a certain newspaper called the Daily Mail. Uh, Bernard Marmaduke Wetherill was a big-game hunter employed by the Daily Mail of London to go up and mount an expedition. And when he found nothing and they basically sacked him, he said, Well, we're we'll giving him the monster and he fakes this photograph and sold it to them. That's the story. Hmm. Well, you know, a lot of people argue for and against, you know, they say that the hoax is a hoax itself. Some people saying Well, there's so many inconsistencies in the hoax story. Uh, my take is uh, two people confessed. That they faked it. Now, if, if one person had confessed, I would still want some corroboration, some extra evidence. But two people confessed to this uh, hoax: Ian Weatherall, uh, Marmaduke's son-in-law, uh, son, and uh, another guy called Christian Spillane, who actually claimed that he manufactured this fake neck on a submarine toy, which they basically set out across the water and took photographs. Controversial, but that's generally accepted view of that photograph.
0: How much damage did that do in terms of, you know, the admission that this was a hoax or the confession? How much damage did that do uh, to Loch Ness research, Loch Ness Monster research?
2: Well, by then, uh, it was 60 years after the event, you know, and a lot of things had happened in those 60 years, which, uh, helped us learn a lot about the lock uh, when the actual photograph was exposed well, I mean, some people said, well I told you so uh, I think it would be more an issue for people who hung their belief solely in this single copeg. you know now if you're if you resting your belief on one photograph or one film, then you're going to have issues but for people like me and other researchers, we said, well That's that's fine, they've done the research. But we have nearly 2,000 sightings, lots of other photographs and films which bolster our case. If one goes, so be it. I mean, it had a psychological impact because it was so iconic. But it didn't bother me. I was disappointed, but I kept going.
0: What about uh, photographs of Nessie on land? Um, do we have any, to your to your satisfaction, any credible photos of Nessie on land?
2: Mm, good question. Uh, we, we have two. One is a film, which uh, unfortunately was taken from two miles distance through a very long telephoto lens. So that's too hazy to actually make out what it might be. Uh, the best one was taken by... Uh, a chap called Ian Moncton in I think 2009 he was motoring down the lock at night time and he and his girlfriend stopped the car at a lay by and he heard this huge splash like a car had been thrown into the lock and uh, he, he he edged the car towards the the shore with its lights on and he took a flash photo with his mobile phone and what we see in the photograph is well it's something that looks like a roast chicken, to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, it's, it's got the le- it's got this short legs. It's got something like a like a decapitated neck, and it's it's going back into the water. Now, unfortunately, there's a bit of lack of context because it's so dark. Uh, that's really the best photograph we have, and I mean, to tell you the truth. Uh, Out of over over 100 years of reports, we only have about three dozen land sightings. So uh, the opportunities, that's about one every six years. So we don't really get many opportunities to pull out the camera in these situations. But tell you what, we have a lot of cameras now, we get dash cams on them, on the windscreens, going up and down the lock. So one day, you never know we may get that sensational footage of the monster crossing the road
0: now we seem to be always hyper focused on Loch Ness but there are I understand uh, several dozen other lochs in Scotland uh, purported to contain some sort of a creature why do we always focus on Loch Ness
2: yeah well I think the main reason is because there's so many People around the loch—it just—it's like a rolling stone gathering moss, you know. It's a cruise; the more attention it gets, the more attention that breeds. So, I mean, for example, Loch Morar, which is the other loch which has what what people call Nessie's cousin, Morag. There's nothing; nobody lives there. It's just a few houses. I've been there. You know, it's, it's a wilderness. There's no, there's no. It's not like the tourist attraction that Loch Ness is. So, the, the amount of potential observers is far less. You get half a million people visiting the Loch Ness area throughout the year. So you get more eyes on the Loch. So you're going to get more reports, more photographs, and so on.
0: How about you personally? Have you had a sighting?
2: and uh, no, nothing. I've I uh, I would uh, irrefutably say I mean I've seen things I've seen fish jumping out of the water ahead heard of something unknown you know uh, the first, I saw these fish jumping out ahead of something but that something never broke the surface so I could never be sure uh, last year I saw a huge splash in the loch uh, I just caught it in my corner eye Uh, Something had gone back down into Loch and it left a a big column of water falling back in. But once again, I couldn't be sure because I never saw the physical object behind it. So I had these tentative things, but not quite what I would call definitive uh, sightings.
1: Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Hi there. I want to tell
0: you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from. And why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the Dead Files. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love Tales of the Paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Loch Ness Monster researcher Roland Watson is here. A few years ago, uh, it seems to me there was seemed to be uh, like an abrupt stop in Nessie sightings, and and researchers were concerned that perhaps the creature had left or it had died. Uh, when was that, and and what do you think happened? Uh,
2: there was a period there. Yeah, it was a few years ago. It was a blip, I would say. We've had periods of non-sightings like, for example, after the Second World War, when people just weren't going to the loch, or people were too focused on the war effort. Uh, So that, I mean, these things happen, it ebbs and flows. But there is another aspect to this which you you, you touched upon. Uh, You know, some people believe the monster actually comes and goes. It's itinerant. It didn't actually stay in the loch. Some, some of the creatures might, but others might come and go, so the population goes up and down. Now, the other issue is uh, fish stocks. Now, the problem is we've had increasing pollution, mm. overfishing, and people believe that this could have an impact on the population of Loch Ness, of the monsters. You know, if there's less fish, there's going to be less monsters. So people have these concerns that, you know, The rivers have been overfished. The seas around Scotland have been overfished. And that's led to a a decrease in the size of alpha predators. So I think that's the reason there for why these things go up and down.
0: Uh, If you could take some time and describe the features of uh, Loch Ness that would make it an ideal... Habitat for this creature this uh, and and why it has been so difficult to find
2: Okay, Uh, the Loch Ness is the largest body of fresh water in the British Isles In fact, some people argue it's it's bigger than all the lakes lakes and rivers in England and Wales combined So for start, it's a huge volume of water uh, they could hold the population about three times over So there you have right away a, a high amount of water to search It's also peaty. Uh, the rivers send down peat particles it stains the water so it actually looks like tea without milking it tea so when you go down and when you go down as a diver you quickly go down and it's total darkness you cannot see the hand in front of your face so it's uh, it's uh, opacity, it's size. I do believe the crevices are that line the lock where creatures can just, you know, rest and stay. Uh, now, actually, is it a suitable place for a monster to live? I mean, obviously, the Loch Ness monster didn't turn up at Loch Ness and say, "Oh, this is a pretty good place to hide. I think I'll hang around." Basically, the, the Loch Ness monster got there by accident from the sea after the ice age and the glaciers receded. Now, there's, there's not much food in Loch Ness in terms of fish stock. Uh, some people have put uh, an estimate of 24 tonnes of fish in the upper pelagic zone. I think you could probably treble that for salmon runs, trout, eels down at the bottom the Benshnic the area. So... I reckon you could uh, maybe sustain a good 20, 30 tons of alpha predator in the rock. Uh, yeah.
0: 20 or 30 tons of predator. That's an interesting way of putting it. So how many individual uh, creatures yeah. then would that be?
2: Yeah. Uh, when people, I mean, going by the dimensions of, for example, the space or Satan, uh, you could be talking about the same size as a large elephant bull seal so we're talking about two to four tons of creature it depends how much of it is solid mass of course because some people think the creature's humps are actually air sacs so uh, but you know that would give you maximum of eight large predators that doesn't mean there's that many there That's, I mean, I'm just talking about a maximum we yeah, could have other smaller creatures juveniles which uh, are only a few feet across. Of course, they'll be rarely seen because they're so small. Or they could be mistaken for otters or other things. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's more an art than a science because no one really... I, I mean, I've asked the fishery board who control the fishing around the Loch area, I asked them how many, how much tonnage of fish is in Loch Ness. They said, we don't know. Nobody knows. They can only guess. But I reckon, you know, you should be talking about 60 tonnes of uh, biomass. And, you know, what you do with that is some people multiply that by 0.1 to get a kind of uh, biomass for alpha predators. But it really depends on the creature. You know, if there's a mammal, the mammals need to eat more fish. Reptiles need to eat less. If the monster was another giant fish... You, know, you, you can have even more tonnage of monster in comparison to the, the prey. So it's really down to what theory you believe.
0: Well, that's a great question. What theory do you believe? Are we talking about, first of all, is it warm-blooded or cold-blooded, do you think?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, if it's warm-blooded, obviously, it's, it's uh, endothermic. So it's going to generate its own heat. So it's going to need more energy, more food. So most people think it can't be a mammal. They don't think it's enough food. Plus, the, the obvious fact that mammals breathe air. They've got to come up, they've got to breathe. So, people just think if it was a mammal, it would be seen far more often. The problem would have been solved a long time ago.
0: Excellent point.
2: So, where uh, people think reptiles, well, reptiles are exothermic, so they draw the heat from the surrounding environment. Uh, the lock is pretty cold, five degrees Fahrenheit. if you go swimming in Loch Ness, you could die of hypothermia pretty quickly. So uh, people think reptiles will be very sluggish in Loch Ness. Most reptiles may may not survive. But at the same time, people have found terrapins uh, living at the bottom of ponds in the winter. So they do, they can survive. They just go to kind of torpor or hibernation. Or amphibians, uh, people think it could be a type of giant salamander. Uh, so these amphibians obviously tend to only survive in fresh water. So the question is, how do the amphibians get into Loch Ness if the whole of Scotland is surrounded by salt water? Tricky one that. Uh, one of my own favourite theories is it's, it's actually a water bre- it's a water breather, like a fish or amphibian. There's some kind of giant fish which basically we never see because it, if it breaks the surface, it's purely accidental. And I actually I believe the, the, the neck reported in reports by eyewitnesses may not actually be a head and neck. It could be some other form of appendage. Um, but, you know, Loch Ness Monster is a great sport for speculation. People come up with all kinds of uh, theories. But I think what you have to see is that, you know, whatever it is, Obviously, it's big. It has to be really related to something we know that's big already. For example, uh, people some people think it's a giant slug. okay But the biggest slugs we know about are only about a foot long. So we can't really accept that there's 30 foot invertebrates of that size going around. Well, obviously, there's a giant squid. Uh, so we really have to go along pick something, look for something which we know exists, which is of similar size, and look for some modification, some a- adaptation of it, which exists in the lock.
0: So, where are we at then? Uh, I mean, so you, th- you believe it, it may be a large fish of some sort, or an amphibian?
2: Uh, it's either a kind of amphibious fish that mm. does come on land. Or it's some amphibian, which obviously amphibians do come and land, but it spends most of its time at the bottom of the lock. Now, I actually tried to find it. Uh, you know, before, you know, initially when the monster hit the news, people just sat at the shoreline with their binoculars and cameras waiting for someone to appear as a pretty low probability uh, venture. Uh, People would try and bait it, you know, throw big lamb's legs on hooks and drag it along (laughs) the lock. Pretty primitive stuff, but, you know, it's worth a try. Uh, Once sonar came along uh, into the 50s and 60s, people began to see strange contacts on their sonar uh, readouts. Initially, paper, and then we moved into electronic age. What were these blips? Uh, These have caused controversy for years. You know, we had Operation Deep Scan in 1987 where about two dozen boats went across the loch a, forming a kind of sonar net. They found three contacts. And today no one can explain where they are. They can speculate what it is, but they can't explain it. So even today people are uh, sceptical about whether sonar can really deliver. But you know, sonar is getting better. We now have 3D sonar. We get pretty good resolution so maybe there's a avenue there as you may know recently we've had scientists go to Loch to try and do what we call eDNA testing now that, what i mean by that is uh, every animal in a water body of water sheds of DNA through skin or faecal matter so the scientists will collect the water and the DNA will persist if the creature stays in lock for a year, the DNA will persist. So they were at the lock just actually a few weeks ago when they were collecting water samples. A guy from New Zealand called Neil Gemmel came along, collected water samples. They've gone now. They're going to extract the DNA of the lock. They're going to sequence it, and they're going to compare all the sequenced DNAs against a, a database of known animals.
0: Right. So there'll be salmon DNA. There'll be seal. Uh, presumably seal DNA. Um, well,
2: that's an interesting question. Uh, seals going in and out of the lock. That's why we believe that loch Ness monsters could do the same. Uh, the trouble is the DNA degrades after a, day, a few days or a week. So the supply of DNA has, has to be constantly replenished by an indigenous creature. Ah, good point. So if, if, if you just had something that came in and out every year, you may not detect anything. So you're going to get your indigenous fish, you're going to get otters, you're going to find human DNA if people throw their waste matter into luck. You're going to find bacteria, slugs, frogs, loads of stuff. But are they going to find something that doesn't match anything in the database? That's the big question
0: and when do we expect the results point.
2: early next year ah i suspect uh, the team of scientists struck a deal with some um, uh something like history channel i don't know who so they'll have exclusive rights on the results but i have to say even if you know, for example if Nessie was a giant eel a 30 foot eel we already have eels in loch ness we catch them every day they're three feet long would the, if we found eel DNA, could we tell if it was normal eels or something else? And, you know, even if you found DNA of eels which looked out of place compared to the European eels which lived there, you still couldn't tell, you know, whether that DNA was belonged to a 30-foot eel or a 30-centimetre eel. So it's, there's going to be margins of error.
0: Potentially another dead end. It's, it seems like Loch Ness is not going to give up its secret.
2: Yeah, well, even the scientists uh, who are doing these expenses say you can't disprove a negative. You can't prove it's not there. So,
0: how, do they, how do they, if they are sort of an itinerant creature, how do they get in and out of, yeah. of Loch Ness? Is, it, is there an under, underwater, underground uh, passageway to the ocean?
2: Well, people have speculated that there's underground channels, but we never found them. Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount them. Uh, I, I wouldn't discount, uh, for example, these, uh, Loch Ness is, a, is on a geological fault line. In fact, Loch Ness is a fault line filled with water. Uh, so we we know that in the past, millions of years ago, there was a lot of volcanic activity, and lava tunnels could have been burnt out underground and then filled with water. So there could be tunnels there, we just don't have any evidence. But of course we have a river. We have the River Ness, which uh, flows from the loch down to Inverness, the town of Inverness, and out into the sea. And we have reported sightings of these long-necked creatures going up and down the river. So we think they, do, they go out to sea. Well, I would add that they're more likely to do that After heavy rain, flooding, when the river's at its highest point, it's easier to get
0: through. So that seems to be then the logical place. You've got this sort of, uh, this point of convergence where obviously it would be much easier to search uh, the mouth of a river than the entire Loch Ness. Why are efforts not being concentrated there to perhaps even trap Nessie?
2: That's a good question. Yeah, uh, I've actually had ideas myself. You know, uh, trap cameras, uh, which are used by Bigfoot hunters. Yes, yes. Strapped around trees. Now I was thinking, you know, the, the river nest is pretty narrow compared to Loch. You know, it can it can be, you know, a hundred foot across. You know, if you get a series of cameras along that there, you could uh, possibly catch a sight or something. Uh, but we also have. The cruise cruise boats that go up in the lock, all of them have sonar, so they've been on the lookout for uh, any of these signs on the river, but nothing's turned up. I mean, the river's normally quite shallow, uh, and I think the creature's more likely to make its way up and down the river at night time. I I think it's more a nocturnal creature, because it lives in the dark all the time. The lock is a a dark place.
0: Right, right. It might even be blind.
2: Yep, well to tell you the truth, uh, people rarely describe eyes. Now that could be because the thing is too far away. Uh, but no, even if it didn't have big eyes, that's for sure. I mean, creatures that live in dark places, sometimes they develop very big eyes. Sometimes they lose their eyes like cave Yes.
0: Yeah,
2: so yeah, could be blind, definitely.
0: How has this year been for sightings, 2018?
2: Yeah, I had a few. Uh, there's always sightings, I mean, like maybe on half a dozen so far. We're now into the tourist season, so we're going to expect some photographs, we're going to expect some testimonies. Now, the problem is, there. Uh, most people just carry their mobile phone cameras with them. And unfortunately, the Loch S. Monster tends to pop up in the middle of the Loch. Now, since the Loch is a mile wide you've immediately got half a mile between you and the creature. So that's not going to produce a very conclusive photograph. And that, that that's the kind of problem that dogs the whole thing. People say, what about all these people with mobile phone cameras? Well, I say, well, what about the half mile between them and the monster? It's only—it's not going to produce conclusive evidence. We really need a bit of luck where someone sees a monster less than 100 yards. And those sightings are very rare.
0: Are you familiar with um, Ogopogo from Lake Okanagan in British Columbia?
2: Yes. Uh, Lake Okanagan? Yes. Ogopogo? Yes. Yeah, but that's the, that's the Canadian version of Nessie. Now, I've, I do believe there's something there, uh, whether it's related. I mean, to tell you the truth, probably are related, because I regard the Loch Ness Monster and Ogopogo as sea serpents that somehow got into landlocked. Uh, Areas, uh, Same goes for Champ in Lake Champlain. Yes, uh, I mean the the re- report, reported testimonies, the the, the morphology of the creature described looks pretty similar to me. Uh, and when they're reported on land, these animals yeah, they look pretty similar, yeah, accounting for discrepancy in eyewitness accuracy. So I think you know someone down the line they are related.
0: There's also, uh, not too far from where I grew up, maybe an hour from where I grew up in southern Ontario, Lake Erie, one of the great lakes, of course. It has its own resident creature called Bessie. Um, and then in northern Ontario, uh, which is just dotted uh, with, with lakes uh, that were formed by the receding glaciers, uh, I have heard that that almost all of those lakes have some sort of a legend uh, uh, of a creature. Um, so perhaps deposited there uh, tens of thousands of years ago by some sort of a uh, well, the the retreating glaciers. Have you have you been to uh, to to northern Ontario?
2: No, I have cousins in Toronto
0: though. So ah, you uh, must come. You must come.
2: Northern Ontario is that near the Arctic
0: Circle. I'm sorry, Northern Ontario. Well, eventually, yes, it would lead up into the uh, the Arctic Circle. Yes, I
2: mean, are we talking about wilderness here? Yes, very yes, very yes but south
0: south of the tree line, way south yeah. of the tree line. So, uh, just you know, a few hours even from from where I'm sitting in Toronto, what we call Cottage Country, uh, just countless lakes, countless.
2: I suggest you pick your best leak, get your trap cameras and strap strapping around the trees.
0: <laughs> Excellent.
2: Idea. Them. Yeah, I mean I have got I've got cameras around the locks just now strapped to trees. Yeah, so they're just flashing away, the motion detection triggered, heat detection at night time. I I tear them off the trees, I take the memory cards out and I basically plod through the photographs. And the off chance that something strange will swim across it. Nothing yet so far. Because the range of the camera is very small. It's right. about 60, 60 feet out. And Loch Ness is 26 square miles. You see the problem.
0: Indeed. Well, Roland, you keep us um, updated. If, you, if anything turns up on one of those tree cameras, let us know. In the meantime, thank you so much. Great meeting you. And uh, I appreciate you spending some time with us. Thank you, Richard. How do, we get to, how do we get a copy of The Water Horses of Loch Ness and When Monsters Come Ashore? Oh, just go to Amazon. Amazon, okay. And the Loch Ness Mystery dot blogspot dot co dot UK. Loch Ness Mystery dot blogspot dot co dot UK. Thanks again, Roland. Or dot com. Or dot com. Terrific.
2: Yeah. Thanks very much. Hey, Richard.
0: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to give you the heads up on what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. Coming up on episode 88 of Conspiracy Unlimited, paranormal investigator Joshua P. Warren is back with a wild story about time shifts in the Nevada desert. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind.